We're in Lesson 17, uh, 2 Corinthians. We're looking at the first 18 verses of chapter 10. And again, we're going to be talking about Paul's credibility. Now remember, throughout this entire letter, this is going to help you to understand what's, what's happening here with, this, with the Corinthian church. Paul has been talking about different doctrinal issues and different things that need to uh, happen. And Paul's been talking about the issue of his credibility because they have been, really, they have been questioning who he is, even though he started the church. Even though he's the one who ministered among them. They've been really questioning whether or not he's truly an apostle, or whether or not he's truly a servant of God, whether or not the things that he's telling them is correct or accurate. And why is that? Because they've been listening to these others in the church who've come up from Jerusalem who don't like Paul because they believe that that Christians should keep the Old Testament law and Paul taught that you shouldn't. So they begin to have this question of credibility in their mind about who the Apostle Paul is. And so again... Here now, as we get into chapter 10, Paul's going to hit it right on. He's going to hit the issue of his credibility right on from here on out and discuss it with him. It's been an underlying thing throughout this whole letter up to this point. Now he's going to hit it right on. So let's look at a couple things here. First of all, there's a call to obedience in the first six verses. So let's look at the first six verses. Now, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in the presence who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when when your obedience is fulfilled. So let's look at a couple things here. First of all, the manner of his exhortation. Paul is meek and gentle, in his approach as he calls them to action. So, as he's getting ready to enter into this discussion with them, and especially as he's going to call them into some obedience on their part, notice how his approach is. His approach to them is is that he's going to approach them gently and meekly. He's not going to come out with both barrels blasting at them. Although he could but rather he's going to deal with them gently and meekly. Now that is a principle that you're going to see throughout the Bible. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 talks about that if there's someone who is in sin, that those who are spiritual are to go to that one who is in sin with gentleness and meekness to deal with that brother or sister who's not doing right. See, there's a principle in the scripture about how we're to deal with each other, especially when we're not doing right. And the way that we deal with each other is to deal with each other in gentleness and meekness. Now, why do you think that's important? Why not? Why doesn't the Bible just say, if you see somebody in sin, go blow them away? Why wouldn't that work? Okay, it pushes them away. Yeah, so like, uh, let's say Tom here is doing something he shouldn't be doing. Bruce and I see him. 
rather than going to him in meekness and stuff, we show up with baseball bats ready to do business. And, you know, what's that going to do to him? Is he going to say, oh, I really know that those folks love me and that they care for me? Huh? Oh, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure we won't hit you? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you, you see what I'm saying? Meekness and gentleness is the approach of Scripture when it talks about dealing with people's sin. Because a lot of times, though, think about it, a lot of times when we react, it's because we have reached a boiling point with the issue, haven't it, isn't it? And so because we've reached the boiling point, we actually explode onto people. You know, you know, I'm, some of you know what I'm talking about. We've exploded onto people before. And the issue is, is here he's saying, look, as, as we approach this issue, and especially as he's going to approach this issue of their obedience, he's going to approach them in meekness and gentleness. Now, look at the exhortation then. Verse 2 gives us the exhortation. Paul wishes that they deal with the issue, or he will when he comes. So Paul's saying, guys, meekly and gently, he's saying to them, look, I wish that you would deal with it. Or when I come, I'll have to deal with it. Guys, when I come, I don't want to have to take you to the woodshed. I want it to be a time of fellowship and refreshment. So I want you to deal with it now. Now, you can see why he would, he would rather than do that. I mean, how many of you look forward to disciplining? Raise your hand. Uh, I just love disciplining. Nobody here loves that, do we? Your kids think you do. But none of us like that, do we? We would rather that it doesn't happen. And so the Apostle Paul is the same way. He's wishing, what? That they would deal with the issue, because if they don't, he's going to have to deal with it when he gets there. He's going to have to correct it, which that's not going to make for his visit to be an awfully fun time, is it? Now, look at the description. Now he's going to describe his ministry. Because here's the accusation. I want you to notice with me the accusation. Look at the end of verse 2. He says this, Confidence by which I intend to be bold against some. he's, He's going to deal with some of these false teachers. Because here's what they're saying. Who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now, does anybody know what that statement means? Basically, they think that Paul is living his life by carnal values. By worldly values. And they think of that and they're communicating that. So when he comes, he's going to deal with those folks. So he's going to describe his ministry now because that's the accusation. The accusation is is that Paul is living according to the world because he doesn't do what they think he should be doing. He doesn't He doesn't uh, proclaim that everybody needs to be circumcised, that is the men. He doesn't proclaim that everybody needs to keep the new moons and the Sabbaths. He doesn't proclaim that everybody needs to keep the Old Testament law and keep to the dietary laws. And so they think that he lives according to the flesh and according to the world. Now some of you know what I'm talking about because you can relate to that because there are some churches today that would look at you and say, well, you may think you're a Christian, but you're not living like one. Because you're not dressing the right way, carrying the right Bible. Going to church every time the doors open, you know, and so forth. You know, how, how many of you can relate to that? And then there's been a judgment towards people because of that, has there not been? 
And so they accuse you of being carnal, worldly. Anybody know those terms? I'm sure you've heard those terms. That you're being worldly. And backslidden. How about that one? See, that's what Paul's dealing with here. Paul's dealing with that same kind of thing. And so now he's going to talk about the manner of his ministry. And so look, notice first of all, he says, as he tries to defend himself against those accusations, he says, Paul stated that though he lives in the physical realm, he doesn't live according to it. Even though he lives in this world, even though he's in this physical world, you know, he's, he's existing in this planet. He's enjoying the sunshine and he's enjoying anticipating the crocus coming up out of the ground or whatever. He is saying, you know what, but I'm not living according to the world. Living according to the world is living according to the culture of the world. The values of this world. That's what he's talking about here. So, so even though he says, look, the manner of his ministry, even though he is in this physical realm, he is not living according it. And so then here's the next point he says. He does not use the world's methods in ministry, but God's power and strength. He doesn't use the world's methods of doing ministry. He's using God's strength and power. He's not using the world's methods. And see, you can almost see why the accusation would come like that. The accusation would come is, is that maybe they had a set standard of how you do ministry. And I'll be honest with you. Let me ex- explain something to you about Judaism. Remember, the only people in Judaism who were going to heaven were who? And the rest of the world, which were Gentiles, where were they going? They were going to hell. Now, let's say a Gentile received enlightenment and realized that Jehovah is God and he wants to become a Jew. Well, they had this long process that a Gentile would have to go through to become a Jew. And that was, I mean, it was a long process. And even if you went through the process, you might, quote, become a Jew, but you wouldn't still be accepted because you weren't a Jew by birth. And so in, so that's the thinking of the Jewish population anyhow, is that you have to go through this all stuff. Now, enter in the gospel. Enter in the issue of salvation now. Salvation is by what? Grace, by faith in what Jesus has done. Now, enter into it now these Jewish believers who are mingling among the Gentiles and they're still thinking in terms of what things used to be like. They can't quite grasp the reality that for you and I that we don't have to eat kosher food. So no cheese with your burger. Yeah, that's true. If you go to Israel. Yeah, you can have meat. You just can't have a hot Italian sausage. No, no, no pork chops, no sausage. But you can't, you can't have cheese with your burger. You want to know why? According to the Old Testament, you can't, can't boil a calf in its mother's milk. And so they take that a little bit further and say no milk and cheese, no, no milk products and, and uh, meat together. You're laughing, but isn't that the kind of thing that we do? Hey, you know, we Baptists are notorious for making up rules like that too. Are we not? And so he's defending himself because these folks are saying, you're using worldly methods to reach people. Because in their mind, they're thinking of a set way of reaching people. 
You're using worldly methods. Worldly methods. And so he goes on and then he says the nature of the ministry. He says this, the gospel was proclaimed against false arguments to bring everyone to Christ. He says, I'm not using false false worldly methods. I'm doing it in the power of God. And what are we doing? We're proclaiming the gospel. We are confronting the lies that are out there. We are bringing every thought into captivity in obedience to Christ. We're proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming the gospel. You know, can I be honest with you? There is an issue today in the church church circles today where it is a question of how do we present the gospel? And it's, it's a heated argument, especially in pastoral circles and journals and so forth, about whether or not to use methods that are culturally relevant to where people are at, or whether or not we should keep using methods from the 1950s. The old way of doing it. The problem is the old way of doing it isn't doing it. And so, there, so, and actually in some of the, some of the articles that are written, there are people who sound like Paul's detractors who are saying you're using worldly methods. And the response of those who were doing the new methods are saying, well, but yet, but the gospel's never changed. The methods by which we use to reach them may change, but the message is still the same. It's still salvation by faith, by grace alone. And that the message is still the same. We may not go around knocking door to door, but let me ask you something. When The last time somebody knocked on your door, did you appreciate that? No. Let me ask you something. Who would you rather talk spiritual things with? A total stranger? Or somebody you know? Yeah, a friend. Here's another one. You think about how you came to Christ. How many of you came to Christ because of a friend, a relative, somebody you worked with, or a neighbor? Raise your hand. How many of you came to Christ because of a total stranger? Raise your hand. Just a very few. Most people come to Christ through what? Yeah, you have to earn the right. See, and so what's what, what's happening though is is that in today's culture, see, there's a struggle in the churches today between those who say, okay, let's use new methods to reach people where they're at because the culture has completely changed. Does anybody recognize we don't live in the 1950s? First of all, I, I wasn't alive in the 1950s. Some of you were. It, it's different. I'm looking over here. <laughs> and over here. <laughs> it's different today, isn't it? 50 years later. Do, do you see my point? I think both works. Yeah, you know what? Because here, here's the thing. I think my whole point is this, Bruce. If you want to use the old methods, fine. The gospel, let it be proclaimed. Remember what the apostle said. The apostle Paul said, some are preaching the word to add to my affliction. Some are preaching the word out of good reason. I praise the Lord for both. So the street preacher, I may not like the street preacher. You know, I may not like his method. But praise the Lord, he's proclaiming the gospel. And he could be planting a seed. That's exactly right. He could be planting a seed. 
And you know what? It's the power of God that saves an individual. It's the power of God that saves an individual. My whole point is is that I think we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of the apostles' detractors, where we say the only way to reach people is with a crusade. Or the only way to reach people is to have week-long revival meetings at the church. You know, that's the only way. The only Bible to use as you proclaim people is one that people don't read anymore. See, that's what I'm saying. We've got to be careful that we don't fall into the other trap. And so the apostle is saying, look, I'm not using worldly methods. I'm proclaiming the gospel in the power of God. And people are getting changed. And that's the point. Yeah, you're right, Bruce. So everybody understands. I'm not saying that the other methods are wrong. What I want us to be sure of is that we don't fall into the same trap. You understand what I'm saying? So that we don't say... This is the only way to do it. This is the only way to do it. Hey, you, everybody here recognizes think methods change, don't they? Some of you who are in business or whatever, your, your businesses are constantly changing, aren't they? Because there's new tools that come out, there's new ways of doing things. If you kept doing it the old way, how long would you be in business? Not very long. I mean, you might hang on for a little bit, but then somebody else would come with new methods and so forth and whatever. It's constantly changing. And what attracts people constantly changes. But the message never changes. The message never changes. Let me me just stop for a moment. In mission circles, it's called contextualization. I'll give you a little bit of a lesson here. Contextualization is that you take the unchanging message of the gospel and you go into that culture, you learn what that culture is, And then you proclaim the gospel, which is unchanging, in that culture in a culturally relevant way. That's what we teach our missionaries to do as they go overseas. But for some reason, we think that there's only one way to do it in America. Well, I'll be honest, there isn't. And you know what? For instance, does everybody recognize that you are different than people in South Carolina? Do you realize that? Your whole way of life and lifestyle here in Kerwinsville, Pennsylvania, Clearfield County is completely different than in South Carolina. You're completely different than in Ontario where I used to pastor. For instance, here, one of the strengths I think about folks here in this area is that they're so family oriented. That you'd rather do stuff with family before you do anything with anybody else. Now, I had to adjust to that coming here. Because in Canada, they were socially oriented. The number one place to be was a donut shop. And in my town of 6,000, we had four donut shops. Open 24 hours. You say, boy, they must love donuts. No. The donuts were terrible. They had good coffee, yes. The purpose, the reason why they were popular is because in Ontario, Ontario Canadians are very social people. And so like my second office, I very rarely was at home, ask Lori. My second office was two blocks away at Tim Hortons. Because that's where you meet with people. See, that's a different culture. Now here, Tim Hortons would never fly. It wouldn't. We had one donut shop and it shut down. 
Why? Not because you don't like donuts. Not enough police. <laughs> no, it's because of the way you guys are geared. You understand? It's because of the way you guys are geared towards family. So how do you reach people? So like the number one popular activity for reaching men in Canada where I was at was a men's breakfast. Once a month we would have a men's breakfast at a local restaurant. They would open it up for especially for us and serve us breakfast. And we'd have lots of unsafe guys there for the men's breakfast. You couldn't do that here. You could not do that here. Because the culture is different. Here, we're running out of tickets for a roast beef dinner for a hunting activity. You couldn't do that in Canada. Because you don't talk about guns in Canada. It's, you've got to think in terms of the culture. And see, that's what the Apostle Paul is. He's a missionary. And he's got these people from Jerusalem saying, you're using worldly methods. He says, no, I'm proclaiming the gospel and the power of God and the people are getting reached. And hey, thank you that he did do that because we would probably not be here. You understand that? Thank you that he did do that because we would probably not be here because he was the apostle to who? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. Okay, let's go on. So then the nature of the many. So, Verse 6 says now that he's ready to punish. He's ready to deal with these people who are, who are calling it to question his ministry. So notice now, Paul stated that he was ready to punish any disobedience that they might be obedient. So he's ready to deal with the issues. He's ready to deal with them on these issues. He's ready to confront those who are making these accusations to bring them into obedience. To bring them into obedience. You know, and I can't even picture what that would be like to have an apostle. We don't have any apostles alive today. I know there are people who claim to be apostles. Caitlin sent me an email, somebody claiming to be Jesus. There, I can't picture what it would be like for a church to have the apostle come in and deal with you. I almost think it would be like dad dealing with you. I always, whenever I messed up or whatever, my mom would say, you just wait for your dad to get home. Quaking, you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I mean? And I think that's the sense there. So he's saying, look guys, I'm ready to deal with you. I'm ready to do it. But he's doing it in gentleness and meekness. So now listen now, verse 7 through 11, he responds to his critics. So he's going to spend his time now talking about these critics who are attacking him. So notice what he says. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. So let's notice his response here. First of all, Paul wants them to move beyond the surface. What's he saying? Paul encourages the Corinthians to look beyond the surface. 
Listen, can I be honest with you? If the Apostle Paul walked in here and he didn't tell you who he was, you probably wouldn't pay him no mind. The New Testament makes it very clear that Paul probably was somewhat of an insignificant person. If he spoke, you probably would not be impressed by his language or his eloquency of speaking. You would probably find fault with how he spoke. Here's the man that we consider the greatest Christian in the world, and people in his day, his contemporaries, thought of him as being insignificant. Thought of him as being puny, weak. Isn't that interesting? They weren't impressed by his speaking, or his, by his, the eloquence of his speech and so forth. But that still did not remove, and that's what he's going to say here to them, that still did not remove the fact that he was the apostle. Chosen by God to reach them. And so he encourages them, look guys, you need to look beyond the surface. Isn't that how we judge people? We look at the clothes they wear. We look at how they speak. We look at the surface stuff. What part of town do they live in? What kind of car do they drive? All of that stuff. We look at the surface stuff. And Paul says to them, look guys, you need to look beyond the surface. You need to look beyond the surface. Because here, here's what he's saying. He says that, Paul points out that he is just as much a teacher of Christ as others. Paul points out that he is just as much a teacher of Christ as others. He may not have the look, he may not have the style, he may not have the lingo, but he's just as much a teacher of Christ as others. Hey, you know what, there's a warning here. I need to spend some time telling about this warning. Can I be honest with you, the number one way in which we choose our pastors today is what? What do we look at when we choose a pastor? Yeah, he's speaking. How good a sermon does he bring? Isn't that interesting? You know, if the Apostle Paul showed up at our church to do a candidacy for the pastor, we probably would not pick him. What? Yeah, because 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about that he did not speak with eloquence of speech. He was not an eloquent speaker. But isn't that interesting? That's how we choose our pastors today. We don't even look at their relationship with their spouses. We don't even look at their character. We don't look at anything. We look at how well do they speak. We don't even call their references. He may be a till of the Hun, but he can speak good. And we'll call him as our pastor. And so Paul says, look guys, me in the unimpressive state that I am, You who think I'm weak and puny, you who aren't too impressed with my speaking, look, I'm just as much a teacher of Christ as the others. Hey, let me give you some, just a real side note here. Do you want to know what the, what the scriptures say is the key characteristic of a false teacher? The key characteristic of a false teacher is how they speak. Wow. Let's see, on one hand we, that's how we pick our pastors. And on the other hand, the Bible says we need to be warned. Isn't that interesting? Think about that. Think about that. Okay. So, 
he says then that he points out that, so now he's going to talk about his authority, God-given authority. Paul points out that the authority of his ministry was given to him by the Lord himself. It was given to him by the Lord himself. The authority that he had as an apostle was not something that he just assumed. It was something that was given to him by God himself. By God himself. And look, we know that. Remember now, before Paul became a Christian, what was his chief job? Persecuting Christians. He was a zealous Pharisee. And it took Jesus himself appearing to him, knocking him off of his horse, blinding him to get his attention. Calling him into ministry. So it's not like something he was seeking to do. I mean, probably the last thing that morning on the road to Damascus before he met Jesus, the last thing on his mind he was thinking about was, boy, I'd love to join that group and be a teacher. Oh, I can't wait to to share the gospel and be beaten up, shipwrecked, thrown in prison, flogged, and ultimately have my head removed for Jesus. I just anticipate that. No, it was given to him by Jesus. The authority to do it was given to him by Jesus. So then in verse 9, he talks about the nature of his last letter. He, he points out that he talked to them about something. Now, this is a letter that we don't have. His last letter is not 1 Corinthians. There's a letter that was in between these two. And so here's what he says. He points out that his last letter was not a strong arm tactic to terrify them. Because I, thankfully, I guess the Lord didn't want us to have that letter I guess he was pretty straightforward dealing with the issues with them in that letter. And so he points out to them, guys, the last letter I sent with you, that I dealt with these issues, and I dealt with them rather harshly and directly, he said it wasn't meant to strong-arm you or to terrify you. It wasn't meant to strong-arm you or terrify you. So then verse 10, he looks at the criticism now that people we're saying about him. So verse 10 tells us this. Paul's critic judged his speaking abilities and his appearance as not being significant. They'd say, you know what? Notice what it says verse 10. He writes these really powerful letters, but when he's with us, he's meek and humble and he's insignificant. That was the criticism. He writes these real mean, powerful letters, but when he's with us, he's rather meek and his speech is contemptible. Notice the word there. Verse 10 says, This is what they thought about how he spoke. His speech, contemptible. They didn't really care for the way he spoke. Think about that. They thought his speech was contemptible. So, then notice here's Paul's response in verse 11. His critics need to recognize that he will exercise his authority in person, as in the letter. He says, you think I'm meek? When I show up, you will understand the authority that I have. Now, let me just stop for a moment. I need to remind you of something. We'll go back to the book of Acts. And this, I mean, for him to exercise his authority can be a terrifying thing. Because as a gifted apostle, I want you to think back. Remember, when he was on his first missionary journey, they were on the island at Cyprus. He was standing before a Roman official. And the Roman official had some sort of wizard or Jewish guy there trying to convince him not to listen to Paul. Paul, in his rebuke, 
cursed him, and that man was immediately struck with blindness. Whoa. You think he has authority? Aren't you glad I don't have that kind of authority? <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> A different time, wasn't it? Boy, am I glad I don't I'm glad I don't have that kind of authority. Man. I'd feel bad about myself. You know? But I mean he that, when he dealt with people, the power of God was with him and he dealt with people. You see the apostle Peter doing the very same thing when he when somebody there was struck. In fact, you see the apostle Peter, people dropping dead at his feet in the church. And and then the the passage then says afterwards, and great fear came over them. Yeah, of course. Somebody speaks like that and people start dropping dead. I think I'd be afraid too, wouldn't you? So he says, look, you need to recognize that he's going to, what? He's going to exercise his authority in person as well as in letter. He's going to exercise that authority. Okay, verse 12 through 18 we'll look at next week. We're going to look at the issue of the intruders in their midst. And uh, so he's going to deal with this issue of this, these legalists. Let's just be honest. This is what we're talking about here. Legalists. So we're going to spend some time next week talking about dealing with these intruders in our midst. Because look, they're joy suckers. They'll rob you of your life in Jesus in order for you to be, quote, perfect. And let me be honest with you. Ever notice that legalists aren't perfect either? They're just blind. Blind to what, George? Blind to their own sin. So we'll talk about that next week. Okay, let's close our time in prayer and get ready for the morning worship service.